Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 166. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we've been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at BJRayman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with part two of our interview with Andrew Miller. And if you missed last week in episode 165, go back and give it a listen. We followed Andrew through his early days in the tech industry and how those softer skills of writing, presenting, and being intentional helped him excel throughout. Through his journey of becoming a business owner and having a nice side gig, into the pre-sales world and working for a partner. This week, we're going to follow Andrew's journey into management. Andrew has experience managing both pre-sales teams and technical marketing teams. And we're going to hear from him how those are similar, but also how they're different and how you might approach them differently. A little bit about what it might take for you to be a manager, if that's something you really want to do. He has some great tips for managing remote teams and ways that that can be done successfully. And Andrew will also share what life at a hyper-growth startup is like. What would it be like if the company was growing so fast, it was almost a new company every quarter? How does that affect you, the pace at which you have to work? How does that impact your work-life balance and your stress level? How do you keep your energy up? All those questions are going to get answered as we dive into part two of our interview with Andrew Miller. I would imagine, Andrew, with the fact that you have management experience, that you've been on the receiving side of one of those presentations from maybe someone you worked for or the vendor who presented it to you. I'm really curious about the manager side of receiving that presentation and then maybe we tease out how you got into management and a little bit about the why. You look back and you don't realize how hard a role is until you've you've done it, right? Any the the, the I think it's Douglas Adams. Any any sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic, you know, kind of thing. Anything you haven't done, it's like, oh, just they do that thing over there. So, I, I even remember I'm thinking of on on the receiving side. I had one one uh, partner. I actually was. Um, no, I'll leave out the name. Where we got along really well. I wasn't a jerk of a customer, but sometimes it'd be like, hey, let, let's just get to the point. And I noticed that he would kind of wander around a little bit, sometimes a while before he'd get to some negative pieces. And then I realized later when I was on the partner SC side, the reason you do that is even if you know that someone's good to work with, like a customer, you have enough folks that really don't like to hear bad news that you f- you're wandering your way into it. You're couching it. You're looking for the EQ side of it, the emotional response. You're kind of circumnavigating your way before you get to the hard statement kind of thing. Because I then found myself doing that later. So even sometimes that awareness of, am I talking with someone where I have enough relationship and I need to just get right to it? 
or they prefer that kind of thing? Or is it someone that I need to kind of sound it out, see how they're doing that day? Did they get up on the wrong side of the bed? Are they going to blow up or not? So sometimes that those learned patterns of almost kind of circumlocution. Uh, my, my sister was a uh, textbook editor in China for a while. And she actually, we talked a lot about how the writing styles uh, in um, in Asian cultures, at least Chinese versus American, of like that you have your subject sentence, you say what you're going to do, then you lay it all out. Whereas from there, a lot of the dissertations that she sometimes helped translate and then rewrite was you basically circle around and around and around and around until the conclusion is so blindingly obvious you can't miss it via almost inference, if you will. But sometimes even taking that and applying that how you're chatting with folks. So that that's what oh, it comes to mind when you're asking about you know being on the other side of presentations. Wandering wandering into management was was interesting in that the I was at one partner uh, for a couple of years, a little smaller, but growing steadily. And then I was approached, kind of headhunted away by a different partner, a company called Vero, um, later, got, later got bought out. And I was about employee 30 over about four years. It went from 30 to 150 employees, which for a partner without outside funding is, is pretty fast growth. That felt fast until a, a later ride where it was venture capital involved. And so um, I was an early SE there. And then basically the team had grown enough that there was a need to have an SE manager, but they didn't want to lose me or one of my peers who were some of the top SEs. So they asked us to be kind of managing SEs where we both had kind of half the team sort of roll up to us. And then we were also still working with certain customers that we spent a lot of time with. Thanks to the, one of those gentlemen, actually, we're still friends. We talked about a month ago, Tom Queen, he went and did something else. It was like, well, I guess you're the full first full-time SE manager. And it, it was still not a, like, I need to be, I need to climb the ladder. It was, I'm looking for new challenges. And also, even hopefully you feel some of this, like we're talking about whether it's mentoring or some of the psychology behind being an SE, as well as the technology that's got to be there. Like, it's a fascinating psychological role and being able to help people and build them up over time and even give them the platform to succeed. And there's a lot of gratification in that, even personally. It doesn't have, mean that you have to be altruistic for like selfish reasons, but it can actually be interesting to build a team. So came in where I was the first full-time SE manager at Vero. And I had a mix of folks with differing experience levels. And so you think about, you know, how do I take someone who used to be my peer, and I want to respect that, but I am their manager now, you know, so I need to respect what the company's asking me to do, or folks that are a little more junior. Sometimes it was, you know, even like, you know, uh, do you want a weekly one-on-one or a bi-weekly one-on-one? We're going to have a one-on-one because, you know, I need to build a relationship with you, but at least some choice. I'm not here to dictate on you. There, there's another great tool there. Um, this was later recommended from, um, I want to say it's, he's Cato Grace now on Twitter. Uh, is it VMware still, I believe? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, I met him in a previous life, so I was having to double think for, for, the, for the name change. He recommended to me a Manager Basics podcast series. And there was some stuff in there that when he recommended it to me, I started listening. It was like series about how to do one-on-ones with your direct reports and how to do delegation and reviews. And I was like, some of this stuff I've just kind of stumbled into finding it works. The one example I'll give is that for one-on-ones. Um, I had a manager at one point, going to leave this vague, because he was a really good guy, but he was super busy kind of thing. The only time the phone rang was when there was a problem. It wasn't necessarily that, that like I was the problem, but there was a problem because otherwise he didn't call me because I was generally pretty self-sufficient. So sometimes you kind of look at the phone and you're like, uh, do I want to pick up? Like, I know I need to pick up, but, uh, so like 
sometimes you answer, sometimes you don't answer, and 30 seconds later you call back after you kind of mentally pull yourself together kind of thing. So I, I took that in being a manager for the SE manager for the first time and said, like, I want to at least have enough relationship with folks on a regular basis that that's not the reaction when I call. That it's not automatically like there's got to be a problem. So this goes into regular one-on-ones it, and with a, a pretty light structure of stuff that I need to tell you about, stuff that I want you to, like, I want you to tell me about, like stuff that's going on. And is there anything high profile that if it goes sideways, I'd rather know your some general details about it from you before I hear from whatever account executive or manager or customer, right, kind of thing. I'm just like, these are sensitive, volatile, volatile type stuff. But just having that cadence of communication and and it, caring about people, that sounds so trite, but that is the role of a manager. Um, and in some ways, I even felt that more as I had kids. It's not exactly the same genes, um, but, but, it's a li- but there's some similarity there. Was that the Manager Tools podcast by any chance? I think that's right. I didn't get the right the right link, but it has stuff about one-on-ones and I'll make sure to find the yes, Manager Tools podcast. You're right. See, I was right. thinking he had found one that you didn't know about, John. Now, this is great. I mean, you the the thing is when you know multiple people find the same resources useful, it's and they come across it independently. Mm-hmm. It it feels like a little bit better to rely on that resource as opposed to the other way around <laughs> manager tools basics and and even when i when I first saw it, i was like wait a minute basic i've been doing this for a little while but you know you try not to have a, a chip on your phone i was like actually yeah it's basics but like the basic foundation sometimes that takes you a long way well just like the fundamentals when you work the help desk and it operations you got to get those down when you move into that new job uh, what was it? Was it Don Jones? Yeah. In his episodes, he was saying, you know, going into management is a different career path. It's a different job that you have to skill up for. The other piece there I was thinking about is the, um, and this is another, actually, it's a book recommendation, even if someone doesn't read the book. Um, just the title is, to me, like, really fun to kind of pull apart and think about by Marshall Goldsmith, I want to say. He was an executive coach, I guess, of the level of, like, executives paying money to be a coach. Okay, so seems legit. Like, when I when I found the book first, I had it recommended. But the title of the book is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Even if you don't read the book, there's so much in that phrase. Okay, so where am I in my career? Maybe indiv- And now, now I'm doing this in the frame of individual contributor to manager, but you can do it for any transitions. What got me here, understanding what that is. So let's say like as an individual contributor, you've been really good about attention to detail. You always follow through. You go above and beyond, et cetera. Okay, what got you there? Well, first, what is there? Where are you trying to go? What pieces will get you there that may be the same as what got you here, may not be the same? I mean, the easiest example there is the super detail-oriented individual contributor that becomes a manager and drives the team nuts because they're a micromanager because they managed every single detail before, and that's what made them successful. But if you don't realize that enough, that can become a weakness instead of a strength, right, kind of thing. So this even goes into some of the other pieces about being intentional, about being manipulative. And then, especially at a management level, politics is not a dirty word. We're people. If there's people, there's politics, right? Kind of thing. Just that's reality. But the the idea as well of that being politically aware without playing politics and recognizing the concepts of managing up and managing down. Managing down, especially if you come out of an initial contributor role and do it for the right reasons. Hopefully it comes kind of naturally. You want to help your team. You want to build them up. But if you're not managing up well, 
to your boss, highlighting what your team's doing, keeping them happy, some level of reporting, even jockeying for stuff in the company, you're actually doing your team a disservice. It doesn't need to be just for like, I need to look really good and all the people underneath me don't like me and I just make myself look good to my boss. But you actually have to have that balance of managing up to do right by your team. And that is a hard balance too. Yeah, it's really that idea of developing relationships, you know, that you have time to develop now that you're in that management role and then, you know, building kind of, you know, relationship power, I guess, is maybe one way to describe it so that when you're, yeah, yeah, personal capital, you know, the institutional knowledge, right? Any number of, you know, ways to talk about, you know, kind of this soft power, right? Where all of a sudden your team needs something and then you have the resources to call upon to get it done. And if you need, you know, part of the job is to to build all that up and you can't, if you don't spend any time doing that, then like, as you said, you're doing the team a disservice and you're really not doing your job because that's part of the job. Sometimes when, when hiring, there's sometimes the concept of build versus buy. I think we've all, we've all heard that for a while. It's like, you know, maybe if I'm, I can either build a bunch of scripts, I can write a bunch of scripts, or I can go buy a product that would do some of that. That applies as well when you're hiring from a, a management standpoint. The, the idea of what skills do I need to buy? I need someone to come with these core, core skills. And what can I afford to build in a role? Now, the perfect thing is you get someone who has all the hard skills, all the soft skills, et cetera. But you know, let's take it from, a, from, we'll stick with the pre-sales one before we go to the next uh, maybe career phase, is uh, I found over time and saw this that I would far rather have someone who had some kind of hard skills, they knew some kind of technology, even if it wasn't the stuff that we did, but that was less important. As long as they had some demonstrated technical aptitude somewhere, I would rather hire someone with initiative, with soft skills, could get along with people with a degree of EQ, because they could learn the hard skills, they could learn the technology. Now, a perfect world, you know both of them, you know, kind of thing that brings you the credibility and other stuff. But there's some stuff that as you're hiring, and I've even flipped this around, like if you're interviewing, thinking, trying to think about, you know, for this role, what skills might the hiring manager, and then you talk with friends or peers in the industry, like what skills are probably the non-negotiable ones they're looking for? And it may not be called out in the job description to be very real, but what do they need to buy in this role? They need to buy someone with those skills because that's what a job is fundamentally. And what skills could they could could they build in the role? And then how do you present yourself as saying like, it's worth taking a chance on me. Like I don't have these pieces, but I got these pieces over here and aligning it. I like that. I really like that. The, um, portfolio of individuals like and the skills that they're bringing build versus buy and hiring that's a great phrase i gotta carry that with me (laughs) how about this one andrew in your case it sounds like you wanted something new you were given a chance to take it on and you were willing to do that what about the person who thinks they want to be a manager but doesn't really know if that's for them what would you say your advice might be in that scenario so, ironically, this came up uh, in the last week or two. There, there's got to be enough motivation, and hopefully motivation that goes out, outside yourself, just to be very real. So if you're, and, and this is where I'm talking about the way that the world should be, not necessarily the way that what the world is, okay? I'll, I'll just recognize, or the way that I believe it should be, um, kind of thing. And I think we've all had bosses where we've looked at it and said, like, mm, they're really in it for themselves, right, kind of thing. And that's not, that's not the end of the world, right? People are people are people. So I'd say, making sure to count the cost around not just is this a career step up but I hold a bunch of other people's careers in my hands now I have, I have a responsibility 
that goes beyond just me and that can be kind of sobering at times and and none of this is me saying that I've been perfect at this stuff like I've learned a lot along the way obviously I'm glossing over not calling on my failures because hey I'm, I'm human but like you learn these things through challenges kind of thing but that it needs to be hopefully about more than oh I just want the next step in my career because I've seen sometimes where people have said I don't know what's next but going and being a manager is the only other step that I see. And it's not even something they want. It's just the only other option they see in their current role. And just to be careful about that, because some, I have seen it backfire sometimes with folks. They're like, I didn't really want to be a manager. I just didn't know what else to do next. And if you don't understand that well enough, it can backfire on you. And frankly, then it can also burn some bridges professionally and personally in some really challenging ways. I just think back to Ethan Banks, episode 42. Thought he wanted to be a manager, found out he hated it. I remember chatting with Ethan actually before I before I went to Rubrics. I was I was doing my GQ investigation on a, I was an event with him and I was interviewing with Chris Wall at the time and he and Ethan had the um Data Knots podcast. I was like, I need to talk to this guy Ethan to try and figure out how I can learn something about the guy that I'm interviewing with for a job, you know, kind of thing. And, and Ethan was super friendly. Nice. They both are mm-hmm. great dudes. What about managing team members who are not in the same area as you. So like long distance management, remote teams, building up the team culture. How did you uh, run into that and what kind of advice do you have? So uh, full disclosure, uh, my management experience has only been uh, with remote teams. So the, the last time I actually went to an office every day physically was 2008. So the first time here's my career. So like uh, customer customer role kind of thing. So my, my experience is largely around remote teams. There's got to be some level of regular communication cadence, uh, making sure that folks feel just, just comfortable. This is even kind of welcoming space. Sometimes it's going above and beyond from a... Um, understanding the level of uh, well, give it techie, the bandwidth that you get via video versus audio, phone calls versus email versus Slack. I mean, this is about communication style sometimes. The, the sense of kind of even if folks will work well working remotely is sometimes actually a little bit of track record, to be honest. And if they're looking for it, even in that, though, sometimes is even a little bit of travel, too. Um, some roles that I've, I've hired for and even I've had, there is a certain amount of business travel expected. There is definitely, I've definitely had some lessons learned around um, if you haven't done work travel for work before, um, in some roles I've been able to afford hiring folks that haven't done work travel before. Um, other times I actually couldn't afford that because if you haven't traveled for work before, you don't know how it's going to affect you. You can't. How will your wife, husband, kids react? How, how will your body physically react when you're running around and on planes or driving 2,000 miles a month, right? That kind of thing. So sometimes there can be, especially, you know, if you're interviewing for these roles, if you haven't actually had experience traveling on a 30, 50, 70, whatever percent basis for work before, folks may or may not be willing to take a chance on you. So you may think, you know, not a, hopefully no role is just a stepping stone to another one, but sometimes you can even look at that work travel standpoint as a skill, it's a type of a skill that you actually need to have to get into certain kinds of roles where people need to know that you can, you can figure this out. Definitely would, would put on the value of one-on-ones, going back to some of the manager's tools basics, now that I got the name right, you know, thanks, John. Um, as well as know, trying to tease out from folks during the interview process of what degree of self-motivation is there. In a pre-sales role, 
it's not as hard in some ways because there's relatively clear numbers, there's quotas, there's things that match to like they need to go out and meet with customers. It's semi-defined, but it's not totally semi-defined, if you will. I'm losing my words here. Oh, well, more caffeine. Um, as you get sometimes into other roles where the outcomes are a little bit mushier, figuring out how to be clear about what is the expected output of the job. With, and also even sometimes, and I'm thinking of one person that was a, a little challenging, of I was they were brought on to my team and I really didn't know much about what they were doing. And so all that I knew to do was, what do you think you can accomplish with the next period of time? What are the goals that make sense? Let me make sure I get some buy-off on them. And then I'm going to hold you accountable to the goals that you set. And I'm going to try and clear away roadblocks. So, because I didn't really know much about what they were doing, to be very real. Like, I didn't have the right skill set. So, but then they actually had challenges meeting the goals they had. So, we had to be like, well, you, we can't set goals and expectations if you can't meet them. Or we need to break it down into smaller pieces to hopefully set you up for success. Last thought is, it feels like, and, and I might be wrong here, but it feels like maybe with COVID, maybe before that, there is the sense that remote work is an expected uh, job skill and that folks, if they haven't, and I realize that we're all now looking at each other with fun, you know, home office setups and that kind of thing, but that if you're not able to work from home with good audio, video, audio setup, video setup in a way that doesn't inhibit your ability to communicate well, you ought to put some time into that. And the cool thing is the tools here actually aren't super expensive at this point. You know, I'm not diminishing, but I'm talking to you. I think we were laughing before about microphones. I'm talking on what was an $80 microphone before the COVID spike and then it went out of stock, you know, kind of thing. And it sounds pretty good. So if you spend some time on this from a professional standpoint, you can start to pull around that. Actually, I lied. There's one other thought I wanted to put in. Shame on me. If there's a HQ, a headquarters, it's interesting to think sometimes about the idea of an HQ center of gravity. So this is where I think of sometimes like say, well, let's say like, let's just take, and now this is my own background of a uh, field sales team, SE, you know, pre-sales, post-sales, whatever. Uh, that is fundamentally based in the field. Everyone's kind of equally disadvantaged. You're running around, you're on the phone, you're doing Bluetooth. People are kind of accommodating of like, I'm going in and out of cell signal because you've got to be running and going kind of thing. And you're home sometimes, but not always. When it's an HQ role, if you're remote, there's the expectation that, well, most of the people are in HQ. This has totally changed in the last two years with COVID, but you're the person who's on the conference call and more people are in the room and a couple people are dialed in via the conference bridge, even if they're up there, and you just start to lose so much of what's going on. And you have to kind of recognize that when you're going into a role, like what's the center of gravity? And is everyone in this group equally disadvantaged from a communication standpoint? Or are some people naturally... Well, they're going to be sitting together, but I'm not. Well, I better compensate for that by going out to HQ regularly and building relationships and actually knowing I'd better go above and beyond to replace some of the natural stuff that happens with the other folks that happen to be in person with each other more. Is that a natural or very real fear of missing out? I think it's a real fear in the sense that, um, and I didn't see this as intentional, but folks just gravitate to who you have more of a relationship with. And even you can turn your side, you can poke your head in someone's office, you know, or virtually do that kind of thing. I've even started that sometimes when I'll jump on an ad hoc Zoom for five minutes with someone. It's like, hey, I'm just considering this like I'm poking my head in your office. It's not meant to be a long thing. Just like this is typer than faster than typing 5,000 words in Slack. We can say 5,000 words in five minutes on Zoom kind of thing. But the there is also linked into that sometimes the sense of EQ and relationship maintenance that's harder remotely. 
the way I've thought of it over the years is if you say, um, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to pick on John for a minute. If you say John White to one of his peers, what's the emotion that comes up? And so, and, and even like you say, Andrew Miller to someone, you know, what's the emotional response? Because this is the idea of like, if you've worked with someone on a project, you may or may not remember what the person's done, but you remember how you felt about it. So like, I'm thinking of a gentleman named, um, was Chad inside a peer. He knows who he is if he's listening, you know, and uh, someone came up and was like, Hey, there's a project coming out, maybe working with him. And my first response was awesome. I love working with Chad. I don't even care what the project is. Like, it's going to be great. He's great to work with kind of thing. And some, and having this, trying to keep that sense of what is that reaction of just the emote, the, not, not even like a mean reaction, just like if someone says your name, what's the EQ, the emotional response to the person on the other end. And if it's not positive, maybe even sometimes uh, reaching out, manufacturing some positive interactions, catching up on things. You can't do it all the time, but it's a little this background sense of how do people perceive me, not in a kiss-up way, because otherwise it can inhibit your ability to be effective. And it sounds like what you're saying is that sometimes that can just be compensated for by many repetitions. Like by, you know, that I've been around that person you know, three times, you know, three hours a day, I just see them in my peripheral vision and I see, you know, not the emotional highs, the emotional lows and the emotional mediums. So I have a sense for what the medium is, right? As opposed to someone that I see one hour a week uh, remotely. The There's also the idea of just general relationship stuff. Now we're outside of tech. I'm going to get this a little bit wrong, but that for every negative interaction, you need to have eight to 10 positive interactions. That's like a human thing, not a tech or job or anything like that's with your kids or your wife or your spouse or husband, you know, kind of thing or anybody. Um, just because we tend, um, we remember the negative stuff a lot more. Like if someone says something that we didn't like, man, that sticks more than the eight good things they did. So um, not trying to artificially create that because people can feel when it's just artificial, but being aware of that as you're as you're working with folks and did you see these same patterns that you mentioned in managing pre-sales engineers as you did when you managed marketing teams at rubric some but a little bit different being the roles where uh i i se's reporting to me were a little more self-sustaining isn't quite the right word but once you get folks going, it, it's relatively clear the day-to-day stuff. And it's more of, it's, it, while it's not a rinse and repeat because you have new customers and there's input, it's fundamentally the same job over, over and over again with various facets and you're learning, you're growing. Um, when I was hired at Rubrik, maybe this is bridging into that a little bit now, uh, I was the first tech marketing hire. And so I was hired both to be an individual contributor, kind of part tech evangelist, part engineer, creating content, working with product management and engineering, but also being out of VMUG user cons and speaking and that kind of stuff and was hired for that blend of skills, but also was hired to be the person to build out that team. So I was the first hire and then I was hired so um, Chris could stay largely as a tech evangelist and then hopefully I would build and maintain the team. And so hired 12 folks in in two years there because that was when I mentioned the hyper growth before and rubric in that time went from 200 to 1300, which feels like a totally different scale of growth. Like feels like a new company every quarter almost kind of thing. In that case, there was a different level of management just because back to that buy versus build, I was usually focused on folks that could bring in technical knowledge, hands-on, community engagement, that kind of stuff, varying levels of public speaking and writing ability. And so depending on the different profile of the person, 
would be more or less involved in trying to help them ramp up because maybe they had a lot of, let's just say, VMUG UserCon experience, but they hadn't written as much before. They hadn't blogged or, the, or, or, or maybe they actually had better writing but weren't as good of a public speaker, but they wanted to grow that way kind of thing. So it ended up being a little bit more hands-on from a management standpoint. And being real, I was always juggling and running a little bit crazy um, and tried to do my best. I felt like the folks on the team appreciated that, but it was a stretch of a role. That also kind of comes with the hypergrowth startup too. You know that you don't know quite what you're signing, the level of crazy you're signing up for, but you know you're signing up for for some amount of crazy. Well, if you're asking the people that you're hiring to stretch, it goes to you know it only makes sense that somebody's asking you to stretch as well. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say any specific reason for targeting the startup as opposed, you know, from the VAR specifically? I'd been, at that point in my career, I'd been on the uh, customer side for seven years. I'd been on the partner side for eight years. So one partner for about two years. And then actually Vero for six years. And then Vero got acquired by Serious Computer Solutions. Um, so I was there for six years. I didn't change jobs. The company changed jobs on me. That That's not my fault, right? You know, kind of thing. So, um, and I got to the point where, I ended up actually just taking some time off. Um, actually, the time listening and reading to stuff from Ken Hoy and Keith Townsend, and just consciously stepping. Uh, hey, I want to step step off the merry group, uh, st- step off for a little while, let the world keep going without me, and then I'll step back on. And when I when I came back, started to do just a bunch of networking, and I had some opportunities on the partner side, just because that was my background. I candidly actually had a lot of stuff at EMC because I've been on a bunch of partner technical councils, uh, VMware PTABs and EMC partner technical councils, right? That kind of thing. Uh, but when the rubric opportunity came up, I looked back at when I'd been at Vero and it had been what I thought was a fast growth startup and it was. And I looked at how, how much learning was compressed into that amount of time if you could survive. And I say that a little humorously, but almost kind of real. Like it's a stretching experience when it's growing that fast. You've got to be on. You've got to be diving into it. A little bit of that first impressions thing, because um, you know, if, if there's if the company is growing fast enough every quarter, every year, it's kind of like a different company, and it's a different set of people, and you got to get to know new people and negotiate kind of your working relationships and all this stuff. So I looked at that from the uh, my pre-sales, my kind of part, channel partner side, and said, hmm, I haven't been on the vendor side before. I'm getting reached out to for a role around being, you know, technical marketing, which relates to stuff that I've done, but I've definitely not done it before. And technical marketing um, is a very mushy term. It's more determined. Uh, what it is is more maps to where the role reports in an organization, report to product management, engineering, marketing. That actually dictates what tech marketing is more, to be honest. And at the, that time, Ruger was starting to be in hyper was in the beginnings of hyper growth mode, 200 folks when I joined. And so I said, more of a, if I don't take this, will I regret it? A little bit of the kind of classic, you know, you look back on your deathbed and the chance is not taken. And I think this is going to be hyper growth mode. I've survived before fast growth. I saw how much I learned. I'm really interested in seeing more of the industry. Discussing with my wife about travel stuff and even some international travel. My, my wife's from Singapore, so we go back there periodically. And could that even link in to justify some extra travel? But that helps with points and miles. Let's be real. To then facilitate seeing family on the other side of the world, these kind of things. So it was this sense of if I don't go for it. And then looking back, it was those two years were a little bit crazy, but no regrets because I did learn a lot. But there was also the sense at the end of two years that it didn't feel like two years. It felt more like five or 10 years just because it was like, wah, trying to hang on. 
Yeah, I've never done a startup personally, but we've had a couple people on the show who have. And, you know, Scott Lowe was speaking to us on a previous episode about why he really enjoyed that that type of culture and why he went over to Kong, for example. So mm-hmm. that was that was interesting. What what makes you want to get off of that merry-go-round? Uh, so there were there were a couple different pieces. Um, one was, well, uh, I, I'm making sure of the, the time zones. Uh, insert your preferred time zones stink sometimes. Let's put it that way. Uh, so as well as even just the 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 pace. And this sounds a little bit odd, but I I, w- I was spending about a week, sometimes two weeks a month in Palo Alto. I live on the East Coast. So I go out there. I knew my uh, United flight patterns really well uh, to get out there, kind of thing, like which ones I'm going to be on, leave Sunday night, come back on a red eye Thursday night, Friday. Uh, there's user cons. Yeah. That's, that's rough, man. So, if, but it was I was enjoying it and worked well from a, a family perspective. But then also you're, you're getting to meet a lot of folks. Like there, a lot of the relationships that I built both somewhat predated that, but being at so many different VMR user cons, uh, being able to speak at them, both community and, and sponsored sessions too, being at conferences, having a lot of folks at Rubrik, um, it was a very high concentration of capable, motivated people. And man, that's fun. And getting to see how product management works and how engineering works and how marketing works. And um, sometimes even you see, a little bit of a side riff. You see a product manager for a company, you're like, ooh, it's this all-powerful person. They do have a lot of capability and power, but sometimes they're stuck in between f- the field and the engineering team as far as what they can negotiate for and get, you know, kind of things. So you start to see some of those dynamics about how it works. Um, it, it got to the point where I realized that I was just being real. I'm um, starting to wander close to burnout, and that just feels really dangerous, where, like, you, you try and get this sense of, like, Am I pushing hard enough? Do I care enough? Can I outwork the pace? And am I even doing doing right by my team? You know, kind of thing. So there was a sense of it's been two years, but it felt like a lot longer than that from a startup standpoint. Uh, that if depending on how your list, folks listening to this be like, that sounds like an excuse or a rationalization. Mm. Chat with anyone who's been in a, a fast growth startup, like it doesn't feel like two years. It feels like three, four, or five times that length. And I have huge respect I mean, even one of your previous guests, I mean, Chris Wall, he started before I did and he left after I did. And we had some joint stories together about the craziness kind of thing. So like good for him for how long he, how long he stayed there. I would just realize I just needed to stop and pause and kind of figure out what I needed, what I wanted to do next. The other piece that was really in there was while it was an awesome period, kids were growing up more. I've got twin boys. And this is a super fortunate thing to be able to say. Um, some folks don't have any choice about what they do with their jobs and their careers as far as their family. Like, there are certain options, and those are the ones on the table. It's fortunate enough to have have options. And I looked at it the sense of not just that my kids are growing up, but especially with twins, you see it more, almost more clearly that you've got one year when they're seven, you've got one year when they're eight, you've got one year when they're nine, when they're 10. It's not that they're around, you know, in the house or, you know, hopefully we'll we'll say, you know, who knows kind of thing, but it's that year and that phase of regression and how fast they're growing up and wanted to pull back to something where I could still run pretty hard, hopefully, but not at a um, national time zones. Cause when you're on the East coast and you're always on calls later to when you're working with a lot of folks on the West coast and sometimes international. And when you're stuck in the East coast between Pacific time and European time, that's fun too, you know, kind of thing. And even just the level of responsibility of having 12 folks reporting to you. So it was, 
it was a little bit of a pullback of I, I don't want to slow down too much, but I need to slow down a little bit, you know, kind of thing. And and for me, I've also found that sometimes I push hard enough in my career that I the only thing I knew know how to do is say, you know, uncle, I'm out. Not in a like I'm out kind of way, but like I just need a pause. I don't I don't know how to pull it back down versus just taking a pause and did that another time. That's so fascinating. I think that I never had it articulated to me that there are different, like maybe stressors in a position and that maybe you can handle one or even two, but not like more like the idea that you need to flex your time zone, East coast to West coast, East coast to, you know, European central time. Um, you know, those kinds of like, that's a stressor, right? And that's no one's fault. it just yeah. is. <laughs> and it impacts your body, though, and it impacts your sleep, and it, imp- impacts your, it can impact your health. And then a stressor of travel, right? Same type of thing. When you actually physically travel and hop on planes and stay in hotels, again, you're away from your family, you know, physical stress on your body, like maybe you can't eat as healthily as you would, you would, maybe you can't um, exercise the way that you normally would, you know, um, and you know, so that's another stressor. And then having 12 people report to you is another stressor because you have to, again, manage like team culture. You have to um, pay attention to people's careers, make sure that making sure that you're uh, um, managing their growth and, and providing opportunities for them and, and doing performance management. And then probably also constantly having an eye on the bench and, you know, being ready to hire somebody. So much interviewing. Yeah, hundreds, hundred plus interviews in that time. To, yeah, yeah, and a lot of good people. This rubric was very hot at the time, so there were lots of people who wanted to come on board, which was awesome. That was one. Oh, one thing I forgot to put in when I was in previously at, at Sirius and Vero. Sometimes you were kind of scratching and clawing to find candidates, and then when I went to rubric, it was this opposite thing, where it's like there were so many people that wanted to join, it was almost crazy, and you want to give everyone a fair shot. But you can't necessarily, you've got to start to figure out how to filter down the interviews. And then you become very keenly aware of how important networking is. Not in the sense of you hire friends of friends or that kind of thing, but anytime you hire someone, it's a risk, just being real. And so, how do you start to remediate or mitigate that risk? It's some level of someone that you trust saying, yeah, this person is a good culture fit. They can work hard. The intangibles that can't be represented on a resume to be very real. And so that's when you've got so many candidates coming at you. So for anyone targeting high-growth companies, public companies, it's not submitting your resume. It's working your network and figuring out how to build your network in authentic ways, not using people, if you will. Yeah. Organic networking, yeah, that makes sense. Well, it's amazing how much energy that networking outside your company and within your company can give you and make up for that hard work and a little bit of lack of sleep, you know, in a situation like you were in. Sometimes, like, you know, the conference vibe. You go to a conference, you get this high energy. Mm-hmm. Maybe even if you're an introvert, you probably get at least a little bit of energy and excitement. And it makes up for the going on a little sleep. But you can only do that for so long before you just kind of, okay, this is too well, much. That reminds me of the of one other item from a, from a startup and even a hypergrowth startup is what I've called sometimes new employee syndrome. 
So you, we, I think we all know, like you start in a job, for the first two or three months you're in burst mode. Every 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 meeting is the first impression. You're trying to go above and beyond on every project, et cetera, kind of thing. And it's not that you hopefully in the three to six months range slack off and get lazy, but you know you start to be a known quantity. You know folks. You know where you know. Hey, it's, I'm more tired today, so this will be all right. You know, just just that kind of practical stuff. Being human. When you're in a company that's going that's growing that fast, it's almost like every quarter it's a new company. And so you can't ever be out of new employee syndrome or new employee mode, that kind of higher energy operating energy level. You've got to be meeting new folks, find new projects, see what stuff is going on, look at this. So it's almost that you're almost kind of in that burst mode all the time. And for people who live in startups, sometimes they thrive off that adrenaline rush. But also it is still, it's hard to be in that mode for quarter on quarter on quarter on quarter. And you start to kind of feel that, especially when you try and pull back. It's like, oh, there's all these new people to meet. And I'm sure they're wonderful. But I need to go meet them and figure out how the product management team just changed over and there's a new VP over there and they reorged and mm, mm, that's great. And I, I agree with the goals, but oh, that's a bunch of meetings to have. Oh, boy. So then the I'll add the additional energy and stressor of being uh, of having that like, um, you know, needing to pay attention to that like relationship, you know, mm -hmm. and the I think the way you put it was the political part. Right. Like that's yet another stressor. So that's like four that we just put out there. And again, maybe you can handle like one or two of those things like for an extended period of time and that's just work-life balance, right? But handling four of them continuously, especially when, you know, at least one of them is like a constant, like you said, like turnover of relationships that requires a lot of energy to, to pay attention to that. That can be really rough. I can see how you could, you know, be close to burnout after two years. Suppose I said to you right now that I had good news and bad news for you. Which one would you like to hear first? Before you answer, think about what the answer tells the person who asked the question. If the person who asked the question was your manager, maybe that's their way of caring for you, much like Andrew believed that his job as a manager or people leader was to care about the people under him and give them bad news in the right way. He says he wandered into management, and I think that he took it on and really decided to dig in and do the best job he could. I liked his emphasis on one-on-ones and giving employees a little bit of flexibility in that and structuring them in a certain way so as to remove blockers from employees but get the information he needed to know about to present to his management chain. Andrew also shared a lot of tips on how to manage remote teams. We can't forget about the headquarters center of gravity. He gave us some good things to think about if we are someone who's working remotely and we have to work with a lot of folks who are closer to the company headquarters than we are. Have you ever been presented with a chance to do something that you knew would be a stretch for you in your career? And was it ever something that you would regret turning down? For Andrew, that's exactly why he went and worked for Rubrik. He was the first technical marketing hire and actually built out a team of 12 within a two-year period. That's pretty intense. So he's managing a 
a team with different specific skill sets than those when he was managing pre-sales engineers. He said that the two years felt like five because he just learned so much and it was a breakneck pace. The company was growing so fast. It was like a different company every quarter. That has to be a challenge in navigating the organization, knowing who to talk to about what, probably some reshuffles in the in the people you normally work with. And he talks about that new employee syndrome or being in burst mode all the time. It's just not a sustainable pace for anyone. But it's good that Andrew recognized all these stressors. We got a little bit of insight as to what goes through a person's head when they're close to burnout and they recognize it. The types of questions they ask. The things they feel they might want instead of what's happening to them. How can they dial things back? For Andrew, he says that he needed to take a pause. Well, what does that really mean? And... What other types of analysis goes through your mind when you want to do something like that? We'll hear more about that in part three of the interview with Andrew next week, so stay tuned. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, flying solo for now, for my buddy John White at B Journeyman, signing off. <laughs>